Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming it at novices and strugglers. How often we encourage people to read the Bible from the front of the church, but we don't give them much help, not much accountability, no workable plan. And so the Word Diet is meant to address that deficiency. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're wrapping up the book of Revelation today. It's been a challenging book, a great book, understandable and applicable. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we finished up our long discussion of heaven. We did that for about three weeks. And today, we're at show number 28 on Revelation as we wrap things up here. I would encourage you to go back to SoundCloud or Spotify to hear the old episodes if you haven't uh, been been with us the entire time. Uh, It's going to be kind of sad to leave Revelation behind. It's been a great ride. So today, we have a little bit more scripture to cover in chapters 21 and 22. And then we'll do a review of the highlights of Revelation before I make some concluding comments. Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We pray, as always, that we approach the scriptures to learn about your greatness and your goodness. Help us to understand how to live life more effectively on this earth for your kingdom as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Revelation this week, and we have spent the last few weeks in chapters 21 and 22 focusing our efforts on the excellent descriptions of heaven that are in this passage. The new heavens and the earth, a list of no mores, the things that will not be in heaven, And then heaven depicted as a redeemed city, a restored Eden, and a temple replaced by the presence of God. So what remains is an epilogue, the end of the story, not just the story of Revelation, but the entire Bible. Most of this is in the second half of Revelation 22. There is one more passage to pick up in chapter 21. So we'll start uh, today with two quotes, uh, one by William Barclay who says what remains of the last chapter of Revelation is curiously disjointed and includes a number of repetitions. Bruce Metzger observes, at first reading, a discordant assortment of brief staccato-like warnings and promises, but more careful attention discloses the work of an artist who skillfully reiterates features that were introduced in the opening section of the book. And I guess I'm going to agree with both of these fine gentlemen and scholars that, along with Barclay, I think it is uh, an interesting finish to the book of Revelation, that it does seem disjointed. But I also agree with Metzger that it is full of warnings and promises, and it is completely consistent with the themes that have been developed. It revisits those, uh, extends those in a few places as Revelation and the Bible wrap up. So what can we gain? How can we make sense of this closing passage in Revelation 22. I'll start by reading chapter 22, verses 6 through 11. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. 
The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. So verse 6 is a wrap-up to the revelation in 22, 1 through 5 about the restored Eden, the river of life, the tree of life, and so on. And if you look back to chapter 21, verse 5, there's a very similar verse that wraps up chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, as the new Jerusalem is being revealed. And so this is like an exclamation point on this part of the revelation. It talks about God's truthfulness, and it's bolstered by the angel's uh, description of the character of God, the prophets, and the angels. If we go down to verses 8 and 9, then we see the angel reappearing, and there's an emphasis on not worshiping. The angels, uh, angels are messengers, and the angel describes himself as a fellow servant and says, look, worship is not appropriate. I'm just, we're on the same team. I'm just the messenger. I'm a fellow servant, so don't treat me too highly. Well, Pastors are like messengers. They're like angels. They are fellow servants. And so when pastors, preachers, and teachers don't adopt this position, they're on dangerous ground, right? The pastors, preachers, and teachers have an important position, but at the end of the day, they're also messengers and fellow servants. Now, 6, 8, and 9 are bookends for verse 7, which is in the middle. So you've got the angel in 6, 8, and 9. Verse 7 is Jesus. And so these words are tucked in here again very similar to what we've read before. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Most of the rest of this passage is revisiting earlier previous themes. So for example, in verses 6 and 10, it talks about revelation is to show people. Verse 10, do not seal up. And so we've talked about throughout this that revelation is meant as revelation. It's meant to reveal things to us. And so often revelation is approached as this grand mystery that is inscrutable and we can't figure it out. And there's some difficult stuff in here, that's granted. But ultimately it's meant to be revelation. That's what the title is, right? So it, it is knowable stuff. It's not an imponderable mystery. It is a message to John's audience and beyond. So uh, we are expected, it is hoped that we will treat this passage, this this book, like any other book in the Bible, to understand God's character and what he wants for us and from us in this life. Second, verse 6 has must soon take place, and then verse 7 talks about Jesus coming quickly or soon. And we've talked about this before, about the timing of all this. The two basic approaches here are the preterist approach, which sees an early date for Revelation, and so they see the coming soon that's mentioned here and other places in Revelation as the judgment on the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
The second primary interpretation here it requires some finesse from the futurists. Those, uh, that's those who see this being fulfilled at the very end of time. And they say, well, it's not soon in terms of calendar. It's that when things get rolling, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be quick. So we've had that discussion in previous weeks, but it pops up again here as well. And it's meant to be an encouragement, especially to John's audience. And then third, the blessing for obedience in verse 7. We saw this way back in chapter 1, verse 3. The blessing is for those who keep the words in this book. And it's, an, it's uh, tempting, I think, to think of this book as the entire Bible. And that's possible. could be just the New Testament. Again, that's possible. But I think the direct interpretation here is that, is that John and Christ are speaking about what's happening in this book, in the book of Revelation. Certainly it applies as an as a application to the reading of the scriptures, that we will be blessed for obeying what is laid out throughout the scriptures. But the direct interpretation here seems to be that this is a blessing for keeping the words of the prophecy in the book of Revelation. In verse 11, we're given four descriptions, wrong, vile, right, and holy. And the first question here is whether to read this as four separate categories or as two categories using synonyms. I think it's probably the latter. Uh, If we look forward to chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, uh, we could read it that way as a development of the same pairing of basically evil and good in that passage. The way this verse is written, I think, invites some questions, potentially difficult questions. It kind of reads like free will is being compromised here. Uh, The the first two categories almost seem to hope that some will continue to stumble and walk in darkness. I think in light of other scriptures, though, that is not a, a reasonable interpretation. And so what do we do with the wording of this passage? Commentators say a few things here that I think are helpful. One is that this is actually Christ endorsing free will as a means to God's end. In other words, let people choose what they please. In this sense, we all write our eternal destinies. This underlines our ultimate choice to either reject or to accept Christ. I'm reminded of the C.S. Lewis line where basically all of us say to God, thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done, right? That's the ultimate choice here. And reading verse 11 that way, I think, solves uh, the mystery, potential mysteries here. I think second, we could just read this more casually as basically saying, look, when Christ comes, people are still going to do what they're going to do. That underlines the hardness of hearts. Those who hear will continue to do their thing. We saw this in Revelation 16 in particular, where three sets of judgments failed to elicit repentance late in that chapter. So we've seen some optimism in Revelation, but a lot of pessimism that seems to be what verse 11 is talking about, that no matter what happens, miracles, teachings, God's showing up, you know, in in big fashion, uh, people are going to just do what they do, uh, and they're, they're making their choices. I think the third angle here is that maybe at some point, perhaps it is too late to change, uh, that we get to a point where there's a hardness of heart, where there's just no return at that point. Uh, God's grace is open uh, as an intellectual possibility, but in practice, uh, maybe there's a point where you practically can't get back. Okay, for the next part of the discussion, I want to combine two passages. Let's back up to chapter 21, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll go back to continuing in chapter 22, verses 12 through 15. So, chapter 21, verse 6, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To him who is thirsty, I will give this drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And then chapter 22, verses 12 through 15, a similar passage. Behold, I am coming soon, my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So, a lot of overlap there. The first passage in chapter 21 seems to be God speaking. The second passage seems to be Christ speaking. So that's two of the three trinity. We'll see the Spirit explicitly in chapter 22, verse 17. And uh, he is referenced also in chapter 21, verse 6. Uh, We'll talk about that soon. Both passages are introduced with some interesting phrases. Chapter 21, verse 6, it is done or it is finished. We saw that back in chapter 16, verse 17. And that's the words of Jesus on the cross in John 19.30. And then in chapter 22, verse 12, it opens with, I am coming soon, which which is again um, a concept that we've played with quite a bit. Combining the two, you have in essence the already and the not yet that we've talked about a lot with scripture, right? There's a lot that's been done. It is finished. So this, that original phrase alludes to the power of Christ's earthly ministry, the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. And so we make a huge mistake if we underestimate what Christ did in his ministry, the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. There's a sense in which it is done, it is finished, but there's a sense in which there's more to come. So there's the already and the not yet that is depicted nicely in the introduction to these two passages. Chapter 22, verse 14 has the word blessed. So this introduces the last of the seven Beatitudes and Revelation part of the structure and the beauty of the book. And then 21.6 and 22.13 go through the Alpha and the Omega. We saw this description used way back in chapter 1, verse 8. It speaks to the completeness of God, eternity, and authority. The Greek words here are not just pointing to uh, aspects of time, but the source and the goal of time itself. William Barclay says, John is saying that all life begins in God and ends in God. Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Or Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Or as Matthew Henry puts it, As it was his glory that he gave the rise and beginning of the world into his church, it will be his glory to finish the work begun and not to leave it imperfect. As his power and will were the first cause of things, his pleasure and glory are the last end. So what a beautiful opening to these two passages. All right, it's a good time to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry within God's kingdom. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. 
We're in the middle of a discussion of two passages in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, Revelation 21, 6 through 8 and 22, 12 through 15 have a lot of parallels. And we started into that discussion with some of the miscellaneous observations before the break. Now we go to the kind of the, the guts of it, uh, that there are uh, blessings for believers and then there's judgments for unbelievers that we need to talk about. So let's take care of the believers first. Uh, the first is in chapter 22, verse 14, that they have access to the tree of life and city gates. Both of these are themes that we've revisited from recently. Chapter 22, verse 2, for the tree of life, for example, and the city gates are described, for example, in chapter 21, verse 12. Second, in chapter 21, verse 7, there's the inheritance and adoption into God's family. Now, both of these themes are prevalent throughout the New Testament, especially. Uh, I want to read two pairs of passages that get to both. Ephesians 1, 5, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And then verse 14, the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We see the same pairing in Romans 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So what a beautiful picture, right? That we've been adopted into God's family. We're not God's children, but we're adopted in, into that family upon belief through God's grace. And then there's an inheritance that goes with that. So th that those themes are reiterated here at the end of the Bible as well. And then chapter 21, verse 6 mentions drinking from the spring of the river of life. We saw the river of life in chapter 22, verse 1. We saw it back in Eden in Genesis chapter 2. And then there's a handful of wonderful passages on this. Uh, for example, Psalm 36, 8 and 9. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Notice that it's not just a river, but the springs. The springs points to the origins of the water. So God is the origins of everything. River and water, of course, figurative for abundant life and the Holy Spirit. Again, an indirect re reference that fulfills the Trinity here uh, from John 4 and John 7. And I think it's also especially impressive given the references to God's transcendence in verse 6 and his seeming inapproachability. And so we have that tension throughout the scriptures. God is holy. God is transcendent. He's infinite. He's authority. He's eternal, etc. But he provides for us in this intimate, wonderful way. William Barclay says, the splendor of God is used to satisfy the thirst of the longing heart. For my, pa my pastor in Texas, I'm fond of saying that Many things in, in the scriptures and the Christian life are a matter of God's gracious provision, but also our participation. And we see the same thing here. Chapter 21, verse 6, give to drink without cost, but we still participate. Chapter 22, verse 14, those who wash their robes. And we certainly participate in sanctification as well. Notice 21, 7 talks about he who overcomes. So we're talking about the faithful and back to the language of Revelation 2 and 3, where every letter of the church had a promise to the overcomer. We also see in chapter 22, verse 12, rewards for Christians and punishment for non-Christians based on the works, what they have done. And so it is ultimately a matter of God's grace, but there's still 
this idea that we participate within that grace. We choose it or not, and then we participate it uh, within it, uh, hopefully, right? On the other hand, we have the judgments and curses for unbelievers, chapter 21, verse 8, and then chapter 22, verse 15. 21, verse 8 results in the lake of fire and the second death. Again, those are things we've talked about before. Alludes to future judgment. Chapter 22, verse 15 talks about those being outside the city who practice. And it's interesting that the language in chapter 22 reads as if it's present tense. So if we're interpreting this passage from the perspective of the church age, this is what happens to non-Christians, right? That they are outside the city in this moment, and if they don't get that figured out, uh, they're going to receive future judgment. If we're interpreting this from the perspective of heaven, then these would be the non-Christians in hell and a description of how their, their state and their judgment. And I think both are true, right? We can see this from either perspective. Now, there's a connection here to a long list of sins, chapter 21, verse 8, and then a subset of those in chapter 22, verse 15. This is not meant to be all-inclusive any more than any other list of sins is, but apparently these are key or most convicting sins that are worthy of mention here at the end of Revelation and the end of the Bible. I think it's interesting that the that all of this opens in chapter 21, verse 8, with cowardice and unbelief. I'm not sure that would be the first one on the list. A couple things here. First of all, cowardice leads to sins of omission. And so sins of omission are a very big deal in the kingdom of God. A lot of times we focus on sins of commission, but sins of omission are a big deal. If part of Revelation is to is to redeem and restore and fix the, the sins of Genesis 3, well, the original sin, the first clear original sin is the sin of omission by Adam, who in Genesis 3, 6 is standing there like a dope when his wife is being tempted by the serpent. So it's sins of omission that get things going. And so that may be one of the reasons why cowardice is underlined here in the first uh, as the first sin. Unbelief is connected here. So lack of trust, lack of faith is also really key not really speaking of fear per se, but at least implicitly not accepting Christ's authority over one's life. And so an interesting connection with cowardice and unbelief. Broadly, I think we can think of, you know, the fear of man trumping the fear of God. So that implies that we know about God and we should fear God, but we did not or we could not. And so I think this points to the importance of courage and for us to encourage other people, to put courage into others. If you look at cowardice, cowardice is like many other things. It can be an event or it can be a lifestyle. We're all cowards sometimes, right? But for some of us, it's like an approach to life. And so those are different sorts of problems. In any case, with this being first on the list, uh, it's it's a wake-up call, I think, a sobering uh, assessment of the importance of cowardice and ultimately unbelief in a good and great God. If our focus is to save our own necks and focus on self-preservation, that is not consistent with Christ's ethics to lose one's life and that therefore to gain it. And so this is a call to courage, not cowardice. Second, we see a, a reference to a, a range of various sins that are relatively important. Sexual immorality. It's interesting that that's the only uh, major one from our perspective on the list in Acts 15 and the Council of Jerusalem. So that's obviously a big deal all the way through Scripture. Practicing the magic arts. 
uh, is a big deal. And then, of course, idolatry, no great surprise there. Uh, the vile or the polluted, and that connects back to, the, to Babylon's adulteries back in chapters 17 and 18. And murderers may have the particular application of referring to martyred Christians or those who approved of it. Chapter 22, verse 15 refers to these as dogs, which is figurative for savage and ceremonially unclean, as non-believers would be considered. Uh, they are savage in their ignorance, they're ceremonially unclean. Uh, if this is the approach to life, then they're not fit for heaven. The last one on the list is also interesting. So where it opens with cowards, cowardice and unbelief, it closes with lying. So it's saved for last. Again, this is a, a big key, and I'm not sure we see it that way. Psalm 101, verse 7, No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my pre presence. Or John 8, 44, from Christ, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God is truth, and so lying is not consistent with the goodness of God's kingdom and the greatness of God. M. Scott Peck wrote uh, The Road Less Traveled, a very famous book, but my favorite book of his is called The People of the Lie, and in there he provocatively argues that lying is the worst sin. And I think we could have a good debate on that. Is it pride? Is it lying? Can you distinguish between different types of sin? They, you know, they all interrelate with each other at some level. But Peck makes the, the point that lying is devastating because it keeps people from knowing the truth, keeps people from understanding us. And ultimately, if you take it far enough, we start lying to ourselves. And how do you recover from that? If you lie to yourself, you are immune to repentance. You're immune to correction. And so I think Peck makes an interesting argument that reminds me of what the scriptures are saying here, that lying is a really big deal. That cowardice starts the passage and lying ends the passage so should really get our attention. Now, this is not talking about a works-based salvation, right? Works don't save, but they are indicative of one's faith. You can look at the book of James and 1 John that if the works aren't in line with the stated faith, then we and those close to us should be asking some uncomfortable questions about whether that faith is real or not. I think a second angle is that it reminds me of the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that these are defined as people who are identified by their sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's a difference scripturally between those who engage in an act for example, being sexually immoral, and those who are the sexually immoral, those who are identified by their sin. And I think that's what we see here as well. If we are identified by a sin, then we're not identified by God's grace. That's the basic choice here. We're either forgiven, sanctified, justified, that's how we're identified, or we're identified by some key sin in our life. Last point to make here is that all of this underlines the importance of Christian community, the call to morality and courageous and robust love within that, and the role of church discipline, right? When people are struggling with sins in these areas, we just can't let it go. It's not for the best interest of the person and certainly not for the best interest of the church and God's kingdom. 
All right, this is a good place to take a break. If you're on Facebook, please like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Revelation today, and we've reached chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Christ's references of himself in verse 16 are cool, the root and the offspring of David. We saw that back in chapter 5, verse 5. Of course, the most famous uh, reference there is Isaiah 11. The bright morning star is cool. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 28. It's actually a part of the prophecy of Numbers 24, verse 17. And I really like what William Barclay observes here, that the morning star is the herald of the day, which chases away the darkness of the night before Jesus, the night of sin and death flees away. Of course, Jesus said the same thing himself. John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then verse 17 is a threefold open general invitation to come. Echoes the classic verse in Isaiah 55 verse 1 and Jesus's words in John 6 and John 7, this invitation. The three invitations are first from the spirit and the bride, second as a call to engage in evangelism, directed those who have heard, who have experienced evangelism, and third, uh, pointing to a hopeful response to evangelism itself. Billy Graham says, John simply could not conclude the revelation of Jesus Christ without making the last six verses of his book one of the most compelling invitations to repent of sin and receive Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior. Okay, chapter 22, 18 and 19 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from the book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So warnings with very serious consequences for adding or subtracting to the revelation. Now, this was customary in a time when hand copying was the form of transmission. Bruce Metzger says this is the ancient equivalent of copyright. Basically, don't add or subtract from the original intent of what's being written here. Also implies that heresy distortions reading out of context are heavily frowned upon, especially when backed up by supposed authority. As Paul writes in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be eternally condemned. And this also parallels the general desire, especially as voiced by the independent Christian church movement, to be silent where the Bible is silent and to speak where the Bible speaks. Sometimes this is used to argue that the canon of Scripture is closed with Revelation, but that's a weak argument. For one thing, Revelation may not have been written last, That's a debatable claim. And secondly, this book, as in verse 18, probably means just that. We see similar uh, injunctions in Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, and Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. The same general idea is expressed elsewhere, so it's difficult to imagine that it's particular to anything beyond the book of Revelation. And finally, chapter 22, verses 20 and 21 gives the last word. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people 
Amen. So verse 20 has the promise from Christ to come soon. Again, we've seen that today and throughout Revelation, along with the eager anticipation of the church, especially in John's day, under persecution. I like what William Barclay says here. There is both pathos and glory in the way in which the Revelation ends, hoping for the soon return, but knowing also that Jesus had promised to be with them. And then in verse 21, thankfully, fittingly, the last word in the Bible is grace and amen. What better conclusion could you have? So with the remainder of our time today, I want to review some highlights from the book of Revelation and then have some concluding comments as we close things out. First, going all the way back to the beginning, I think the most important thing to say in what was a long introduction to an interesting and difficult to understand book for modern minds is the idea that of apocalypse as literature, apocalyptic, and how it's marked. It's marked by a description of a world that's messed up, God intervening in that world in a dramatic and miraculous way, and then the world being better off as a result of that. And there's different literature styles, right? Aspects of that literature style that go along with that. The use of numerology, uh, the use of hyperbole and uh, exaggeration. And so if we don't understand that literature style, as Nelson Craybill put it, it's like reading the phone book like a novel. You know, the phone book has a certain purpose. It has a certain style. We don't read poetry like parables. We don't read narrative like prophecy, right? They're different. And so if we don't understand that, we're likely to make phenomenal errors of interpretation. So that's really important. In chapter one, my favorite verse, I think, is verse three. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. So it's as if God knows that this is going to be a difficult book for us to read. And so we're offered this encouragement of blessedness to read it and to understand it and to apply it. Chapters two and three are the letters to the seven churches. I think the favorite verses there for me are chapter two, verse four, where the church at Ephesus is warned not to forsake their first love. They've already done that. They're called to return to loving Jesus and loving other people. Chapter three, verse eight, the open door at Philadelphia of opportunity. Uh, Very cool. And then the lukewarmness of the church at Laodicea in chapter three, verse 16. Now, from our discussion back then on Revelation 2 and 3, it's an immensely applicable and overlooked uh, set of chapters in the Bible. Revelation has a reputation, not totally undeserved for being difficult to read, but the first five chapters, not a problem. Speaking of that, chapters 4 and 5 get us to the centrality of worship in life and in Revelation and in judgment and, and every aspect of life. So the centrality of worship is a big deal. Passage I'd underline here, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Uh, Just so much in that passage, the worthiness of Christ to open the seals of the scroll Uh, He was slain. He purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, the diversity of heaven. And then he made us into a kingdom and priest, those who are bridge builders to others to serve our God. We're not just saved and stuck on a shelf, uh, see in heaven, right? We're, We're made to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God on this earth as we reign on the earth. Then heading into chapter six, we did another very long introduction to that part of scripture 
Uh, we talked about the three basic ways to look at uh, the, the more difficult parts of Revelation, chapter 6 through 16. The schools of thought there are the preterist, which largely sees the first half of Revelation fulfilled in God's visiting earth through the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So the preterists see an early date and see a lot of this in line with uh, words that Christ spoke in his ministry and that a lot of this was fulfilled uh, in 70 AD. Of course, this requires an earlier date for Revelation. Uh, and so uh, there's obviously debate on all that. We're not going to recast that today, but you can go back and listen to that discussion if you'd like. And then there's the futurist who see uh, very little applicability to John's audience, but see a lot of this being fulfilled at the very end of time. And then there's the historicist who see Revelation being fulfilled throughout time, right? either in a direct linear manner, seeing certain chapters lining up with certain historical events, or in the more general sense that there's this back and forth uh, in history between the forces of good and evil, between uh, God and his people reigning on earth, and the, de- the devil and the world and our sin nature doing battle with all of us. I think the thing that's cool about this is all of them have strengths and weaknesses, and to some extent, all three of them are true. I mean, God did visit Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, uh, whether that's exactly what Revelation's talking about or not. Uh, the futurist, there's going to be an end of time where this stuff happens as well. And it's certainly the, the historicist view is correct as well, that these things are for all time, that they're always occurring. Chapter 6 also introduces the three cycles of judgment that are depicted in the middle of Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And uh, many people try to read it linearly, uh, chronologically, but uh, the the much easier interpretation is to read it as three cycles of judgment, uh, in essence repeating from different angles uh, the same sets of events and same time frames and the same struggles and opportunities. So chapter 6 starts with the six seals and the famous four horsemen, and uh, mostly depicting human evil. And it's interesting that chapter 6 ends with a failure to repent in verses 15 through 17. We see the same thing in chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, a failure to repent at what are described through the trumpets as mostly natural disasters. And then in chapter 16, with the bowls, uh, the response again is to curse God in verses 9, 11, and 21. In contrast to all of that and the pessimism that comes from that, that just people aren't going to respond to God's work uh, in nature, to what the human evil that happens around them doesn't drive people to God's kingdom, the judgment of Babylon doesn't help. But what does? Chapter 11 has the two witnesses And because of their faithful witness and the miracles they do, chapter 11, verse 13, 90% give glory to God. And so in the midst of deserved pessimism about people's willingness to uh, walk with God and respond to his grace, there is the optimism of chapter 11 that people give glory to God when it's combined with faithful witness and miracles. And of course, the call then is to us to do the same, to participate in God's good kingdom through faithful witness and the miracles that are availed of us as God works in this world. Back to chapter 7, we have the church for all time. We have the church militant on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. And I think the beauty of that chapter is seeing those two connected, right? It's not simply the church militant or the church triumphant. It's that those are seen to be two parts of the same whole. 
Chapter 8, verse 1, one of my favorite little things in the book of Revelation is the silence for a half hour uh, between the uh, seventh seal and the opening of the trumpets. And so that's just cool, right? The time is still a factor if you read it more literally. Uh, just see the picture of that, that there's silence for a half hour while all this crazy stuff is unfolding. Chapter 10, verse 4, another small thing that I like a lot are that the seven thunders are apparently canceled. Uh, and so we talk about the seals, bowls, and trumpets, but uh, chapter 10, verse 4, something that's omitted and canceled are the seven thunders. Chapter 10 also has the little scroll, verses 9 and 10, that is honey and sour. Uh, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And I just love that description of the Bible, that it is honey, uh, but it creates some sour, right? Even in ourselves, but certainly it has that result for non-believers as well, right? It's honey for us, and it's sour for them. Chapter 12 is the amazing backstory to Jesus' birth and the Christmas story, uh, replete with dragons and the like, uh, as Satan tries to stop Jesus throughout his life and ministry. Chapter 13, an awesome chapter on, on the state and false religion as a two beast, very applicable as we understand the world around us. And then chapter 14, I think this is a powerful point that we always talk about the mark of the beast. But we don't read one verse further. Chapter 14, verse 1 opens with the mark of the Lamb and the victory that comes from that. And the basic choice that Revelation is giving us is, look, you're going to pick up the mark of the Lamb or you got the mark of the beast. That's the choice. And so for all the energy we, we put into trying to interpret the mark of the beast, it's actually a lot simpler than that, right? There's the mark of the beast. You're basically on, on Satan's team or you have the mark of the Lamb and you're on God's team and are assured of victory. A small thing in chapter 15, verse 7, uh, the four living creatures, the seven angels, the bowls, filled with the wrath of God. The word filled with there is teleos, meaning it is finished, as in the language that Jesus uses on the cross. Chapter 17, you've got the judgment on the state, false religion, and the misuse of economic systems by politics. Chapter 18 follows that up with the call to Christians to come out of that directly talking to Christians at that point. Much of Revelation is aimed at non-Christians, but 18 is clearly aimed at Christians saying, look, you don't want to be involved with that. Don't enmesh yourself in those systems. Chapter 19 has the key phrase in verse 10 for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And the bulk of chapter 19 is basically which banquet are you going to? Are you going to the wedding feast of the lamb or are you going to be in the buzzard buffet? In chapter 20, we talked about the three basic views of the millennium and uh, talked through the uh, scriptural support for that and the implications of holding those views, that it's, a, it's not just uh, interpreting scripture, but it has huge implications for how you see the world and our place in it. I think my favorite part, though, of chapter 20 is verse 12, where you've got the book of life and you've got the books of the works of those who are about to be judged. So the singular book of life versus the multiple numerous books of people trying to justify themselves by their works. And then of course you've got heaven. Chapter 21, you've got the new heavens and earth, the list of the no mores in chapter 21 verse 4 in particular, and then the city, Eden, and the replaced temple as descriptions of what heaven will be like. 
Okay, those are my highlights. I'm not sure what yours are. You know, if you've been reading along with us or maybe not so much, this would be a good time to go back and reread Revelation, underline things, journal on what you found impressive and impactful as you read and reflect on God's revelation through Revelation. All right, we'll take our last break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Revelation uh, this segment. We've, we've had 28 shows on it, so if you want to hear everything that's been done before, you're welcome to catch that on Spotify or SoundCloud or uh, Facebook. Uh, that would be a lot harder to do, but SoundCloud and Spotify would be an easy way to find the work we've done here. I want to finish up with a few thoughts here. The first is from a, an essay by S.M. Hutchins in Touchstone, which is one of my favorite magazines, by the way. And he wrote uh, this in September's issue. And I just thought that was one thing I wanted to finish with, that you know we've covered all these different angles in Revelation, and I'm, I think that's the right way to do it. Because there is a lot that we just don't know about Revelation, right? But it's also the beauty of it that there's so many different angles that can be pursued. But I don't want you to confuse that with the idea that, you know, there aren't things that are very secure in the book of Revelation or elsewhere in Scripture. And that's where Hutchins' essay, I think, is helpful. He talks about those who have an aversion to taking sides. And one of the prejudices of their group is that resolute opinion on complex matters is a mark of ignorance. And I agree with Hutchins there, right, that we want to be careful not to make too big a deal of it. There are things that are complicated, but we don't want to make things overly complicated uh, and diffuse the power of what God is and wants, right? So he continues acknowledging that the God they serve is offensively binary, right, zero, one, and that, that sometimes that offends us. His judgments and those which follow his carry an ultimacy in which good and evil are eschatological categories he freely assigns by which he divides the human race and judges its history. So he starts off with some of the kings, right? The kings are either good or evil when you read about them in Kings and Chronicles. Uh, You have the sheep and the goats. You have the saved and the damned. You have the children of the devil and the blessed of the father. So there are these clear distinctions in the scripture. And so we miss, we don't want to mistake complexity for ultimately there there is a decision there is a choice that has to be made there is a zero one at the end of this so my hope and my prayer is that there's not been confusion on that point as we've gone through the obvious complexities of revelation and i've been careful not to be dogmatic where i can't be but don't confuse that with uh, fuzziness right that there's not a there is a zero one here in god's economy Second, I've read a bunch of commentaries on Revelation, as you might imagine, and I really like the conclusion of Marva Dawn's commentary, Joy in Our Weakness. And she talks about Revelation through that lens and concludes with qualities for a theology of weakness and perspectives on Revelation in terms of suffering. And she has seven points that I think are worth mentioning, that from Revelation we get a deeper sense of the sovereignty of God and the lordship of the, of Christ. And in spite of all appearances to the contrary, God is still in control of world history. But second, we gain a deeper awareness of the intensity of the battle. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis said that we can make two mistakes about the devil. We take him too seriously or we don't take him seriously enough. And so if the first lesson is about the effect of sovereignty of God, we know that the second lesson is to take 
the, that evil seriously. The principalities and powers might have been bound to the cross so that they cannot fully control things, but Satan and his cohorts are busily at work, wreaking havoc in this world, corrupting that which is good, deceiving the people of the earth and leading them astray into all kinds of false values and idolatries, rebellions, and self-centeredness. So they're both true, and they have to be held in balance. The sovereignty of God, but the work of the devil. Dawn continues, a third lesson stems from the combination of the first two. And so we should yearn for a great willingness to endure suffering patiently, right? So the interaction of God's sovereignty and yet the free agency of Satan to cause damage means that we're going to have suffering. And so uh, the combination of those two is a greater willingness to endure suffering patiently. Fourth, we've learned, therefore, the value of our sufferings and of being weak and of accepting that weakness in order that we might more thoroughly learn to depend on the sufficiency of God's grace. We've recognized that Christians do not faithfully perform our task by seeking to be powerful and to overcome the opposition of the world around us by force. Rather, we're called to a new gentleness, a submissive humility, a gracious integrity, the compassionate offering of a better alternative, a way of life that awaits its eventual vindication. So God's sovereignty and the devil's work takes us to the, the likelihood of suffering, the inevitability of suffering, and then the corollary of that is that we're not very good at handling things and we're weak. And so we def- depend on God's grace. We defend ourselves through God's grace. And so that's a different approach to the world, right? One that requires humility and gentleness and what Dawn calls a gracious integrity as we offer compassionately a better way of living this, this life, this difficult life uh, that we have, but a great joyous life in the kingdom of God. Dawn's next conclusion is that this causes us to recognize the importance of the Christian community and each of its members, that the difficulties we go through, the suffering we endure, the kingdom of God uh, is lived out through the church in community. And so we're not in this on our own. We're not meant to be that we're called from one community, the world, into a vibrant Christian community. And so we need to do our part to... uh, participate in that, to construct that, to make it better. It's not about solely about a one-on-one relationship with God. It's about participating in Christian community. Sixth, we must walk a careful line between the dangers of cynicism and despair. When we acknowledge our weakness, we, we see sufferings around us. We know that we're weak. Uh, it can be tempting to, to move into despair and cynicism. But that is not the proper choice, right? Um, And then finally, seventh, and I think the flip side of that coin, is that all of this creates a life of great joy. As Dawn writes, such is the joy of those who recognize the dwelling of God will someday be with us thoroughly, but but that now, in the meanwhile, Christ tabernacles among us in our weakness. And that's another way of talking about what I've emphasized throughout this study, the already and the not yet It's not just the not yet. If that's your focus, you're missing what God has already done through Christ in his earthly ministry, the cross, resurrection, Pentecost, right? All that is meant to be a tremendous already. It's not the full deal. If you're in that camp, you're also making a mistake. It's the already and the not yet. Again, as Dawn writes, the dwelling of God will someday be with us thoroughly, but that now, in the meanwhile, Christ tabernacles among us in our weakness. It's both, and we've got to catch both and keep them in balance. And finally, I want to wrap up with some 
more discussion of something I introduced last week. The question of, is an unrivaled worship really necessary? Is unswerving discipleship really worth it? And the answer is yes. And so where does that take us, right? It takes us to a life of urgency, but without hurry. It takes us to a life of purpose, but without treating people like projects. It takes us to a place of relationship, not ritual. If God is sovereign, if God wants relationship with bozos like us, this is where it takes us, right? Our faith is in a good and great God who wants the, what's best for us, knows what's best for us, and the best thing then is to follow him. But that's a life of urgency, not hurry, purpose, not projects, relationship, not ritual. Second, it leads us to a life of passion and no compromise, at that time, for John, right, it was emperor worship. That was the big temptation. For us, it's our culture, all right? It's the beast of state power. It's Babylon uh, in Revelation 17 and 18. Those are the temptations that we face for all time. And this is a call, Revelation is a call to a life of passion and no compromise. Think of Joshua in chapter 24, verse 15. You know, you all serve what you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Or think of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. That's not an option. It's not a good option anyway, right? Choose God. Choose to follow the Lord, the good and great God of the universe. Live a life of passion and avoid compromise. Third, it's a call to a life of perseverance, especially through trials. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So for us, right, Paul's saying go into training and then run the race to get the prize. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us let us fix our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of our faith for who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of god consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart and finally it's a life of pursuing god's best you know, John and James asked to sit at Christ's right hand, and they're not rebuked for that desire. They're just asked, can you bear the cost? Greatness in the kingdom, right, defined properly, is something to strive for, to have an ambition for, right, properly defined. But a lot of times our desires are not too great, but too small. Great line by C.S. Lewis. We, we don't, we settle. We settle for far less than God's best. And so the call of revelation, the call of the scriptures, the call of a great and good God who's extended grace to bozos like us is to follow and pursue a life of pursuing God's best. Lord, be with us. Help us to do this. Help us to be have our eyes flooded by the vision that you cast in revelation for us, uh, the greatness of your kingdom and your, the greatness of your call for us to participate in your kingdom and in community. We thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for the book of Revelation. And all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been great to be with you today and in this study. Hope to catch you next time on The Word Diet.